Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40, the story of Paul and Silas being thrown into prison in Philippi. It is a rich and complex story about power and faith and imprisonment and freedom, and it raises the ever-present question, how do we overturn harmful systems of power while also protecting the vulnerable people who are bound up in those systems? We are amazed at the transformation that happens while Paul and Silas are in prison, where they sing and the others listen, where nobody bothers to run away once the shackles that bind their bodies are open. And we are only more amazed at the care that Paul and Silas have taken to protect the prison guard. But there is someone else in this story whose fate they seem to overlook, whose story seems primarily to set up the main story. So we wonder, whatever happened to the slave girl? Thanks for listening. Hello, Bobby! Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing good. How are you? I am good. It's almost like the beginnings of starting to think about summer. It is. Yeah, we're getting there real quick because we're headed, we're on our way to Pentecost, which is the official beginning of summer in the Christian world. It's not world. Memorial It's like the Memorial Day. It's the Memorial Can I wear white pants before Pentecost? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I can? Oh, wait, before Pentecost. No, no, no. N- not yeah. only after Pentecost. Yeah, okay, you got to wear good. red pants on Pentecost. And then white Seriously? pants. Yeah, I mean, it's a very flamey holiday. Oh, oh. okay. Mm-hmm. Not like the red tongues. Yeah, exactly. Tongue, so you red wear tongue colored pants. Yeah, you wear. F- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be my goal on Pentecost is to wear something tongue colored. <laughs> yeah, I love this. Yeah, and we got a couple of weeks to get it sorted out. This is going to be amazing. I basically, as you know, wear black and gray, and occasionally I'll throw in a dark blue. My students once told me that they said, Dr. Williamson, you dress in the colors of a thunderstorm. (laughs) And I was like, that is pretty much true. Black, gray. Occasionally, I'll wear sort of a lightish blue, like the the sky after a thunderstorm. Wow. But I don't wear tongue color ever. Ever. Like hardly ever. Once a year. Yeah. On Pentecost. I don't even know that I normally do it on Pentecost, but this year, that is going to be my goal. I'm really glad that um, this is the way that our conversation has gone because the people want to know. They do. About this. They yeah. do. Yeah. have to please post a picture. Yeah. We are continuing in the book of Acts today. We've skipped a few chapters. Our reading today is in chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. Yeah. We left off in chapter 9. Yeah. Is there any general introduction you want to give us before we start reading? Or do you want to just sort of fill things in along the way? What do we Well, need I to think know? there's probably a little bit because, you know, if, if you've not been through the narrative lectionary or if you're listening to the podcast but you don't pay attention to the narrative lectionary, it's not entirely clear what, what's going on. Like, how do they pick these passages? Mm-hmm. Basically, the logic is we are 
working toward our way toward Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians, which we're going to get to, I think, in two weeks, maybe. And so the way that they have selected what we're going to read in the book of Acts, at least as as far as I understand it, is we're reading the things that actually happen, according to the book of Acts, when Paul is in Philippi. So earlier in this chapter, in verse 11, the narrator of the book of Acts, who we tend to call Luke because he's the same author as the Gospel of Luke, describes that they go to Philippi, which he describes as a city of Macedonia's first district in a Roman colony. And so this is the setting of this text, and we're, we're sort of getting to know the church, how it got founded, and some of the players, the church in Philippi. So just from that little introduction, you get Philippi is in Greece, in Macedonia. It is a major city. It is a Roman city. Do I remember correctly, or am I making this up that you spent some time there? I did. It's so funny when you said it's in Greece, it's in Macedonia. I spent a semester in northern Greece, and at the time there was— um, Oh, uh, we'll just call it a friendly disagreement between some of the, the Balkan states yeah. and northern Greece about who had the right to use the the word Macedonia to describe where they were as Macedonia. And so there were a lot of bumper stickers that said Greece is Macedonia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I should say, yeah, this is in the ancient world. We are in yeah, the sure, Roman sure, province sure. of Macedonia, which is... Uh, in the on the Greek Peninsula, but I don't actually know all the politics about that. Like there is actually a country now, Macedonia, mm-hmm. but its borders are not the same. Like I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't even know mm-hmm. how to. Get yeah, we into don't that know that the modern situation yeah. is different, as as is often the case. Yeah. But I did learn to tell the story of Little Red Riding Hood in Greek. Oh, I remember I this. Can you do a little bit of it? There, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so the Kokinus Kofitsa is Little Red Riding Hood, and she says. Which means there's a wolf in the flowers. Yeah. I have to go to my grandma's house. That's really all I remember. I love that so much. Mm, Yeah, good. (laughs) This is a fascinating story we're going to read today. Two kind of fascinating stories that kind of merge together. Yeah, Yeah. merge together. So I'm excited. I have a lot of questions for you. Should we dive in? Let's dive in. Okay. I am reading from the NRSV, picking up in verse 16. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Yeah. It Okay. It was not immediately obvious to me in that first verse that there was a problem, that, th- that there was a problem. I, maybe I should have been cued by the word fortune telling. Yeah. I, I don't know. Is your th- is the word spirit like the spirit of divination that she has? Is it capitalized? Like, did you should I be reading this as like a a spirit? When you say capitalized, you're thinking like has she been possessed or is she yeah. being enacted through some actual yeah. like some otherworldly being something? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, so it's not just that she herself kind of has an orientation toward fortune telling. I think this is trying to say that there is some kind of spiritual, like 
otherworldly presence that is acting through her in some kind of a way. The word that's used here for for the spirit is puthos, which is like where we get the word python, like the snake. Oh. And this relates her in some way or another to the oracle at Delphi, where Apollo was was thought to offer sort of oracles about the future through a snake spirit. And so I don't quite know, I don't quite know what's going on there. Like how do, how do we think about what's happening? But there is some kind of connection between this slave girl and divination prophecies that come in other oracles around the Roman world. I, that's probably, I don't, maybe I've opened up some things that I don't know how to No, close, I mean, but. it's just really interesting. It's just really interesting context to see how, you know, this, this sort of like budding Christian community interacts with, uh, I don't know if pagan is the right word, but with like other, other religious beliefs that, that involve spirits that could come into you and give you divination abilities and, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. So, I, yeah, but I, and for our, for, for your question, I think that's exactly right. We need to think about this as some kind of spiritual being from another realm that is acting in and through this girl in some in some kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Does it seem to you to like sort of change the story in some kind of material way that uh, that she's a slave girl? Yeah. I, I get. Yeah. Let me just leave the question there. Like, how how does that sort of factor into your I don't know understanding of what's what's happening here or how we should understand her or the scene unfolding? I mean, there's a couple things. One doesn't become clear until we actually read the next little part of this story where Mm -hmm. the people, her slave owners, her enslavers are deriving profit from her. And so, you know, her, her having this ability given to her by the spirit is making money for the people who have enslaved her Mm-hmm. And so there is a whole economic thing that's going on, which is kind of complicated to sort out yeah. because it, it gives her a different kind of value to them, which one could see as exploitative, but one could also see as it gives her some st- status. Like there are other ways mm-hmm. of being a woman enslaved that are much more mm-hmm. horrifying than being mm-hmm. a woman who- More dangerous, yeah. Yeah, more dangerous. That's that's a, exactly the right word. Than someone who is able to give prophetic oracles- so I don't quite like it's it's going to be complicated I think as we as we sort this this thing out. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me about the use of the word slave there is uh Luke or the author here describes her as a slave girl. She describes Paul and Silas as slaves of the most high. And so you've yeah. got these kind of comparison of different sorts of slavery that yeah. are being used here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk more about what she is calling after them yeah for days on end <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah is there is there anything wrong with the statement that she's making i mean I think, it's no go ahead can you tell me what you mean a little more well i just i'm trying to understand like it says paul is really annoyed yeah and I'm trying to tell if he's just annoyed because someone's following them around for days, calling after them yeah. what what they're doing and sort of who they are. 
which is annoying to yeah. be sure. Or if there is something, I mean, is she just saying, is she just speaking the truth? Is it supposed to be a hidden truth? Like, is yeah. it, they don't want people to know that they are slaves of the most high God? Or is it just someone is shouting behind them and the, they don't like that sound? Yeah. Like, what's, what's bother, what do you think is bothering Paul? So, I mean, on the in the first instance, I think she actually is saying something that is true about them. They are it slaves of the Most High like God. It. They are yeah. proclaiming a way of salvation. Yeah. You know, the phrase "Most High God" in the in the Greek world, in the Roman world, is normally a reference to Zeus, mm. not to Adonai, the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so it is possible to read this as being sort of a misattribution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or at least an ambiguous attribution mm-hmm. where they think maybe she is saying something that is misrepresenting them in some mm-hmm. kind of a way. So that's one possibility. But I mean, that is so subtle in my in my mind about why, like, and why would you wait a number of days before you tried to shut that down, right? If you thought if you right. thought they were saying something, if you thought she was saying something that was misrepresenting you in the world, you would shut that down right away or else you just wouldn't ever shut it down. Like you would just make a decision. Right. right. So I tend to read this as literally as annoyance that they yeah. are just tired of hearing her yelling. <laughs> and so they finally, he's just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. I can't deal with this anymore. Out yeah. of her. So it's like an annoyance yeah. healing. Yeah. Just like he's having an a bad day. An annoyance healing. <laughs> he, can't, he can't take it anymore. How do you, how do you read that? I, I mean, I, um, I think I read it pretty similarly, although it's, it then is, for me, that really changes how I read the rest of the story to come, sort of what, what happens to Paul yeah. because of this scene and what we are to make of that. Yeah. Whether this was like some kind of principled stance. Yeah. Or a thing that he really needed to do or whether it was the very human like like stop making that sound. Like Yeah. <laughs> stop. Yeah. yeah. I think I kind of like the idea that I mean I, I don't know. I guess I was like it when we sort of humanize our characters a little bit. Yeah. That that it's that it's just annoying, but I guess I need your permission for that to be true. Yeah, I mean, you don't need my permission for that to be true, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know that is not the way it is commonly read. I would think because like mm. Paul is Paul, and like he, right, right, right. Paul is Paul, exactly. But I mean, Jesus got annoyed with things and did things along yeah. the way. Like, so I think that sort of humanizing of Paul here opens up really kind of interesting avenues of interpretation and even critique of Paul is like, was is what he did really what should have been done? This reminds you of, or at least it reminds me of some of Jesus's healings, like especially his early healings in the synagogue where there's, you know, a spirit who is saying, what do you have to do with me, son of God or something like that? And he says, mm-hmm. come out and be quiet. You see that in Mark, but you also see it in Luke. So it's sort of like that, where there's a spirit who is naming the truth and Jesus shuts it down. Yeah. Yeah. But here you get it going on for a while and then Paul shutting it down. So it's sort of reminding you of a thing Jesus did, but the motivations 
seem kind of different. And it's not clear to me that she particularly wants to have this spirit kind of removed from her. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like to me, this is a more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Like I read a bunch of uh, the commentaries I was reading were all about how Paul frees this woman from the spirit that is enslaving her. And I was like, "Mm, Mm. okay. Okay. I mean, he does. But, like, it's not clear. It's not that simple. Like, this is a bad thing that's happening to her, and now Paul has made it good. It is a thing, an ambiguous thing that is happening to her, mm-hmm. and Paul has made it ambiguous in a different way. Mm-hmm. And he's demonstrated his power in the process, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I struggle. I struggle with this. Even even calling this a healing. I called it an annoyance healing before. I was like, I don't actually know that the word <laughs> healing is the right word to use there. It's just an annoyance exorcism. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, um, it's funny as I was reading, I totally like, you know how you fill in the blanks of like what you're expecting to come next. I totally read it as like, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to shut up, (laughs) like to stop doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you could imagine that he, maybe he could have done that, right? He could have (laughs) shut down the spirit, but anyway. You know, you mentioned earlier this sort of parallel between it, it, really fronts, front loads the fact that this girl is a slave. Yeah. And then her language about Paul and the folks he's with are that they are slaves to yeah. God. And, you know, it may, we just are coming out of the Passover season. And so that makes me think of the exodus from Egypt where yeah. the Israelites are slaves to Pharaoh who are brought out of slavery not to be free, yeah. but to be servants of God instead of servants of Pharaoh. At least, you know, th- that's the way it's described yeah. in the text. doesn't mean there's not freedom in there. But the point is not that now you can do anything you want. It's that you are yeah. now serving a, a serving where you should be serving and not yeah. this worldly source. Uh, is there anything else you want to, I mean, do you think it's just, we just sort of note that those sort of two levels of slavedom here with a possible parallel to the conversation that's happening in Exodus? Or is there anything else you want to draw out about that? I mean, I, I feel myself very much like pushing forward into the end of ending of this story. I think what you're yeah. saying is right on point. She is So she is a slave to this spirit. She is a slave to her actual enslavers. Yeah. So she herself embodies two different ways of being enslaved. And then Paul and Silas also are being called slaves of the God of Israel. And so mm-hmm. everybody in this text is a slave. Yeah. This sort of issue about like, to whom are you enslaved? And, you know, I, the language is difficult, especially in a modern context. Yeah. But I think yeah. that's the right conversation to be in. I think it will maybe make more sense once we've moved ahead Move a little bit. Move forward a little bit. Okay, good. Then I'm picking up in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell, 
and fastened their feet in the stocks. Some big ramifications for that annoyance. Yeah, for real. Yeah. The the first thing, the first question that sort of jumps out to me here, I'm not not sure if it should be first, but but it was, was in verse 20, this accusation against Paul and Silas. They're disturbing the city. They're Jews and are advocating customs that are not Mm -hmm. lawful for us Romans to adopt. Mm -hmm. How do you read the use of the Jews here? Like how, I'll tell you my first reading was like, Paul's the hero of this story. Yeah. So to have Paul now like, Paul's doing Jewish stuff, which he's not really doing Jewish stuff, but <laughs> to have that association feels like a very different thing than the way the Jews might have been referred to in John. Yeah, John's use of Jews, as we've talked about all along the way since like December, is very confusing to me, very ambiguous. And sometimes he's talking about one thing, sometimes he's talking about another. Mm. This is just, I mean, Paul is a Jew and Silas mm-hmm. is also a Jew. They are representatives of the church in Jerusalem, even though Paul himself is from Tarsus. He's from Asia Minor, Turkey, but he's, a, he's Jewish. And so this is, nothing about this is incorrect. They are Jews. They mm-hmm. are causing an uproar. But the thing that gets me about this is like the real issue for these guys bringing the case against them is economic. They oh, healed sure. our slave yeah. girl. They have messed up our economics, yeah. but we're not going to bring that. Like, you can't just go say that because like they got rid of this spirit. Like they, they did an exorcism. So you mm-hmm. got to say something else. And the thing that they do is they say they're Jews and they, they have their own customs that don't fit with our customs, mm-hmm. which first of all is classic anti-Jewish trope that has been played out all through history. And it's also a sort of law and order approach, you know, where you take uh, what is fundamentally an economic issue and you scapegoat some group based on some vague accusation about they're not like us, which gets Mm. played out not just um, by Gentiles and Christians against Jews, but also against all kinds of minoritized groups in all kinds of cultures. Like there's a, so there's a religious and ethnic accusation that's masking this what is fundamentally an economic problem. There's just so much about that is familiar and troubling. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to see it like just played out right here in the book of Acts. I mean, it gets played out similarly in the book of Esther. Actually, it reminds me of Esther when Haman says, well, there are these people, they don't follow our laws. Like, let's kill them all. Yeah. That reminds me, I mean, it doesn't go that far here, but it's the same kind of impulse. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's such a helpful lens and that really that drives me back to this question of, was this some kind of principled stance from Paul in the first place? Like, did it have, did this, did what he did have anything to do with, you will say being Jewish here as opposed to being a follower of Jesus? Because I'm not sure that the Roman authorities would have distinguished between them. Like That's Jesus right. followers were just a group uh, within the Jews. I mean, Paul and Silas aren't right. distinguishing between those things either. They, yeah. they think of themselves as Jesus following Jews. There, there is no yeah. distinction for anyone yeah. in this text, I think. Yeah. So then, the, you know, if we read it as more 
you know, Paul was annoyed. <laughs> yeah. And so drove this spirit out as a poet and, and used the power that he had because of his beliefs, but wasn't really trying to get anyone to adopt different practices. He just wanted to not be annoyed. It is, it is really interesting and troubling and real to see how quickly it goes from just this real like person to person issue to like a people to people issue. You know, yeah. it's not, it's, um, yeah. No, that's exactly right. And you know, one message in the story is don't, is be careful when you mess with people's money. <laughs> right. Gosh. Yeah. And make sure, I mean, I don't know quite what Paul should have done, but you know, and the other thing that's interesting to me or troubling to me, and this came up in the Bible room collaborative is the, the slave girl herself just drops right out of the story. No, yep. no one's that interested in her. I mean, we get the, after this demon had been cast out, then her owners, her enslavers realized that they couldn't make money with her anymore. But that's yeah. the last we, I think that's the last we hear of her. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like you were talking a little bit ago, and I thought in a really helpful way about being enslaved to Pharaoh versus being enslaved to the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And here she's enslaved by actual ensla- enslaving human beings. And Paul does not show any interest in freeing her mm-hmm. from her actual mm-hmm. enslavement and mm-hmm. saying, now you are set free. And so now you can come be a follower. Like we're setting you free from this slavery so you can come join us in this other slavery. Mm-hmm. He just ends up saying you're prophesying is annoying to me. Yeah. So I'm going to set you free from that, which was not clear to me that she wanted to be set free from. I mean, we just don't know. But what we do know is now her enslavers can't make any money off of her. And so her value has diminished. And being, uh, being enslaved and having your value diminished is not a good, like, yeah. if you're going to be a slave, you want to be a slave who has some unique value, right? You, you don't want to be you either want to be set free or you want yeah. to have some value. Yeah. Now she's just another slave who has no different value than anyone else. I actually think she ends up in this story worse off. She does end up in this story worse off, I think. Unless you view like having a spirit of divination and prophecy as in itself kind of inherently evil, mm-hmm. which may be so, but in practical terms, I don't think it is. Right, right. And, and you know, in in my ideal world, then the text would have reported something about her faith shifting, you know? And so then we could at least tell a story where like, okay, so maybe her day-to-day life were, her day-to-day life got worse. Yeah. But she has this new faith in the most high God and that's not reported. Yeah. Yeah. That's not reported. That's so, it's fascinating how you're talking about it, Bobby, because it, it almost makes me you know, the next scene we'll get to that, that we, we haven't gotten to yet, but it is clearly like a, for lack of a better word, religious, right? There's a religious yeah. moment that happens yeah. in the next scene. But it seems like maybe these first two scenes are not really. Yeah. It's not really what they're about. I think, yeah. that's, a, I think that's a good way of reading it, actually, that this whole interaction s- – narratively serves the purpose of getting Paul and Silas in jail so that the next thing can happen. Right, 
Right, that the real, the meat of this story happens when they're in jail. Yeah. And so then this whole other thing is kind of incidental to the plot. And then, and the girl herself is like completely incidental. Yeah. No one is treating her with any, I think Terry, our liturgist, I think said this in the Bible Worm Collaborative, no one is treating her with any intentionality. Not Mm -hmm. Paul, not the text, not most preachers who skip right on past her. She's just a plot device, but there, but there is some kind of memory of a person who was affected by, by what happens there. Hmm. I'm so curious about why, like, they're, they put them in the center of the jail in the most secure, like, they're in the maximum security wing. They've got shackles on their feet. Do you have any thoughts about why, like what they have done doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. I know. Do you have any thoughts about why they imprison them in this particular kind of way? It's That's such an interesting question. And it just, like it, it goes back to in some ways, I think, well, not quite to the questions we were thinking of, a little, maybe a little bit in John, but like when, when there is a thought that some other religious center of gravity is going to come up against the 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 empire for you know like the belief system or the religion yeah. of the empire even though that's not really what happened in this story yeah. <laughs> like people just lose their minds yeah they lose their minds because there's no it doesn't even seem like they asked any questions of Paul and, si- Paul and Silas here. There's no specific accusation leveled against them. There's no, it's all sort of very vague, but it's, you know, the idea that the whole belief system or the systems that are in place that, that keep, keep things going the way they've been going, that they could be overturned somehow. That fear yeah. is like, yes, it's crazy. Yeah. And when that fear bumps up against, uh, a sense of economic scarcity. Right? Yeah. It, it has messed with my bottom line and it's going to mess with yours too. Then that human impulse to find a group to scapegoat and try to lo- lock them away. I think that is time tested, happens over and over again. And that kind of over response, I think, is, is pretty typical. Mm. Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible Worm at the early worm level, $8 a month, and I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love the sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with humor. It feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode. Okay, now we get into some real meat, picking up 
in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. That was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I love this, uh, I don't know, sort of overturning, I guess, of intentions that that they are imprisoned in the innermost cell, yeah. like presumably surrounded by all the other yeah. prisoners. And, and I love the idea that that is part of what enables all the prisoners to hear them singing. Yeah. I love that. And they're just singing. It's not like, it doesn't seem like they're trying to convert anyone or like they're not no. like proclaiming the gospel. They're just singing the songs of their faith. Yeah. Because that like you're in prison, you need like you, you need to be together and you need to sing and you need to feel the presence of God. And then people gather around that and have this sort of transformative experience of them. I, I love that. There's this going back again to the the Passover story, the first line of Exodus 15, which is that song of the sea that is that the song that's sung is they're actually walking through the the Red Sea as it's parting. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that because what I'm about to say. So the Hebrew is a little funny. It has future tenses for the verb to sing, like I will mm. sing to God, but it also has this Hebrew word az meaning then, that's usually used to indicate the past tense. Mm -hmm. And so there's this rabbinic commentator who, who draws from this the idea that they did sing after they had crossed the sea, but they also sang before. Like hmm. they sang before the miracle happened. And so then there's this whole discussion mm. of why do we— what enables us to sing before the miracle happens, like before we're free? And that just made me made me think of this part. They're sitting in jail and singing. And we don't we don't know what exactly they're singing. I mean, hymns. Yeah. So we don't know if it's like a, a request in any way for help or if it's just I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I love that. God. What's the role of singing? before being set free. I always have just pictured them sort of singing, like they're just going through the 
hymn book, you know, like they're, yeah. they're having a, like, just like what song is in your heart? And you say, this is the song I want to sing. And yeah. it's maybe they're songs for help. But to me, what's important is that they are like, faith is embedded in your soul in a different kind of way in music yeah. than it is in, in other ways. And that they're just singing the songs that are deep in them because it brings them comfort and hope. Yeah, and there's this real, like, emphatically, it is emphatically true that your body can be imprisoned. But if you're singing yeah. in prison, yeah, you know, they don't have your soul. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And I just wonder what it would be like for the prisoners who were, not just the prisoners heard them, but the prisoners were listening to them. Yeah. And I wonder about sort of the state of their Soul sounds too mm-hmm. heavy of a word in this context, but the state of their heart, the state of their spirit before. And, you know, it's, it's not easy to keep that part of yourself alive in prison, yeah. but it's possible. Yeah. And to sort of be reminded of that possibility and maybe be able to tap into tap into the river coming from someone else, you yeah. know, for a while. I love that, Amy. And you know, we don't have any idea how long some of these other prisoners have been in prison. Mm-hmm. And maybe they are n- no longer able to muster songs for themselves, or maybe they don't have people to sing with. And so I love that idea of this group, I mean, of Paul and Silas coming in and sort of bringing something with them that actually gives hope and life to the people around who they have no necessary connection to. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really lovely image. And, you know, inspiring those around in this kind of gentle, dark mm-hmm. of the night kind of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then it gets not gentle. It's not gentle, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it's such a sort of abrupt transition in some ways. Yeah. I picture this sort of quiet, dark yeah. singing. And then, you know, again, also sort of like the Red Sea. Like, there's this yeah. force of nature that erupts, you know, an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. Do you think I'm overreading this like Exodus from Egypt thing? No, I, I love it. I might just be in Passover world. Yeah. No, I love it. I, you know, cause I was about to just say, like, as you were talking, I was thinking, man, Amy, this really, this connection you're making is really opening this text up for me, especially the connection through the sort of singing before the, the crossing of the Red Sea. And then you've got this kind of hopeless situation where, which is met with song to which there is a divine response that is earth changing. And I think that's such a, I love that connection. I, I think it's really rich. Okay, good. <laughs> this is interesting because they are not praying for, to be mm-hmm. let free. They're, maybe they're hymns, but we don't know that. They're just yeah. being faithful in the middle of the prison, in the middle of the night. And yeah. God responds in this way that, you know, here it is, the doors break open and all the chains come free. There, there is an actual, like, the, the potential freedom anyway of all of these prisoners, which did not happen in the previous part of the text when Paul encountered the enslaved girl. He, he didn't yeah. set her free. Yeah. Here, God does set everyone free or, or at least make possible their, their freedom. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad you sort of nuance that a little bit because that next part is is so interesting. Oh my gosh, there's so much just in this section. But I'm going to try to go sequentially through it. So the jailer wakes up 
sees this has happened. And when it says he drew his sword, I thought, again, yeah. my mind filling in what's going to happen next, that he was going to, you know, go look for prisoners and start, you know, enforcing things by the sword or killing people or something like that. Yeah. But it says he was about to kill himself. Yeah. Can you, un how do you think about that? Can you unpack that a little bit? So I think in my head, there's two ways of kind of getting at that. One is very religious, mm -hmm. which is to say very clearly some kind of a god has just intervened in a very dramatic way on behalf of this mm -hmm. group of people. Mm -hmm. This God clearly has a lot of power, clearly is I, on I don't want to be here for what comes next. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> He's the guy that's imprisoning the people that this God is setting uh -huh. free. And so uh -huh. like, oh my goodness, like yeah. I'm undone. So uh -huh. I might as well get it over with because a God who can do this, like imagine what that God's going to do to me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of religious interpretation. The other interpretation is much more civil, mundane, which is this guy has been entrusted with prisoners who are so important that they've been uh, placed in the middle of the jail. And he has apparently fallen asleep at, at the wheel, right? In verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the mm -hmm. prison doors open, uh, he has not been doing his job. And he is certain that he's going to be executed for mm -hmm. malfeasance, dereliction mm -hmm. of duty. And so he wants to just get that over with before he has to be humiliated and executed in public. Yeah, Those are the two ways I can think of it. Does so one of those seem more interesting to you, or is there another option you want to put on the table? So the other possibility that I imagined, and this is really like this sort of slow reveal oh, reading. Yeah. I read really slowly really slowly, was that he sort of wakes up and he's he draws his sword about to kill himself. And my first thought, I guess, was that maybe he's afraid that all the prisoners are still there, but now available, available, like able to attack him. Although I guess it says then they had, he was afraid they had escaped. So the text resolves that issue. We should it does, but I kind of like that. And I kind of like what that opens up by way of saying, he has been imprisoning them, so he assumes that they're going to act violently toward him. Mm. Like that's, I'm not sure that's really in the text, but I think that's an interesting way. He's assuming that they're going to take retribution on him. Because he's in a weird position. You know, it's, it's funny to think about it this way because he's in a weird position. He, this has happened. He could be afraid that he's going to be killed by God. He could be afraid he's going to be killed by the government authority over him. Yep. He could be afraid that he's going to be killed by the people who he has had authority over. Yeah. Like this whole system has been built in a way to like pit people against each other. Yeah. And as soon as the structure of the system you know, has fallen apart. It's like a, you can imagine this like melee. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I guess, I guess it makes sense to me then that his response could just be like, there's no way to fix this. Yeah. There's no way to fix this. I love that so much, Amy, because what you're pointing out is that ambiguity of this guy's position. Like he has a position that is imbued with authority, but it's not really. You know, he the guy needs a job. <laughs> like that's kind yeah. of the way I read him. Like yeah. he doesn't care what happens to these guys. Like he's just been told to watch them. 
And so he is. I really love that. He's caught in the middle of all these things because of an economics system. Yeah. That he needed a job. He got a job as a jailer. It's gotten him, you know, it's gotten the attention of this God. It's gotten him the attention of these officials, Mm -hmm. these prisoners. Mm -hmm. And this poor guy is just caught in the middle. And so then when he says, what must I do to be saved? Or in the CEB, what must I do to be rescued? Like, to me, in verse, whatever the verse that is, 30, you can hear all of those resonances all at mm-hmm. once. Like, what do I need to be, do to be saved? Like, can be a question about my eternal soul and, like, where am I going to go when I die? But it can also be, like, I'm stuck in this system. Yes. And it is not a system that is life-giving to me. It is a system right. that is threatening at every turn. How do I get out of this system? Right. How do I get out of this? I cannot yeah. live like this. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby, I love so much, and also I was also surprised. I'm surprised all the time in this story that though all their sort of shackles have opened and the doors of the prison are open, they haven't left. Yeah. And so part of me wants to be like, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But what I love about it is that it's it's not the binary we would expect. Like you're either locked up in jail— or you're out free in the world. Yeah. What does it mean to choose to sit in inside the prison when you're not locked in there? Yeah. I can't, I mean, can I don't know. We will you what do you think about that? Will you what what do you think about that? I mean, that is such a beautiful way of asking that question. You know, on the one hand, they have just been accused of creating chaos in the city and like being a dangerous presence. And they are so not dangerous that when the jail breaks open, they just don't run away. <laughs> like, look how little threat we <laughs> are to you. Street smarts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to me, that's part of it. Uh, another a kind of a theological way of getting at it is, look, your prisons actually have no power. The God yeah. that we are singing to is way more powerful than you. And so we, you, you can lock us up. Like, it's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like what you were saying before, if you're singing hymns, they can imprison your body, but they can't imprison your soul. Like, this is kind of, now they can't actually imprison your body either. You're yeah. just sort of letting them, like, they're, they're just able to do it you know, yeah. but it doesn't have any real significance. I just feel like it is such a complete, like, overturning of the power structure more powerfully than it would have been if they had left. Yes. Because it's like, we're not even playing your game. Yeah. Like, you can play whatever game you want. We're not playing. Like, you don't actually have power, but we're also not afraid, so there's no need yeah. for us to run away. Like, we're not playing. Yeah. Because if they get if they get out and run away, then you're just like, yeah, you're just continuing the narrative right now. Right, then now there's they the won. dogs and the helicopters in the spotlight. Right. And then you're like, now you've got an action movie and they round them all up and they're like, yeah, look at law right. enforcement. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is which is a little bit what does happen in the Exodus story. Like yeah. there is this like battle between yeah. God and Pharaoh and God triumphs, but there definitely is a like competitive <laughs> yeah. thing happening. Yeah. There's a lot of one-upsmanship in that story. Yeah. And I just love that they just cut it off here. Yeah. They just cut it off. You know, this, I think, also might remind us of 
the conversations we've been having about Jesus in John's gospel, but it also happens in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is just like, I'm not playing that game. Peter yeah. gets out his sword and Jesus says, nope, no swords here. You know, they, they try to execute him and Jesus says, you do what you got to do. You know, like, I'm not mm-hmm. about sh- showing you that I'm stronger than you. Yeah. In the ways that you would, in the ways that you exercise strength anyway, like I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm going to break open your prisons. I'm going to do all of these things, but I'm not about playing the, by the rules that have been established for earthly power. Yeah. The other thing that I wonder about in this text, the way that it's framed is whether, I mean, one way of reading why they don't run away is because they understand what would happen to the jailer if they ran away. And mm-hmm. so they have so much compassion for him that they are willing to sort of stay where they were as a way of protecting him. That's not in the text exactly. Yeah. But I think it's available there. It's pretty incredible that it's not even just Paul and Silas that stay. Yes. We are all here. Yeah. Somehow whatever has happened, like the transformation that has happened in that prison has been pretty complete. Yeah. That's exactly right. So just random people who are in there for all kinds of reasons, have right. all kinds of religious backgrounds, they all stay. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's right. And we don't get any notice that they necessarily become believers, right? The no. prisoners. No, no. So so it's not just that it's not that they have all been converted to be followers of the Jesus way and so they realize they have to stay. They've just been so compelled or something. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I don't know what to do with that exactly, but I love that. My last question for you here is right before, okay, so in verse 33, yeah, it says, he took them and washed their wounds. Yeah. Then he and his entire family were baptized without yeah. delay. And that has me thinking back to mm, some conversations we had in John I think it was after the crucifixion when Jesus sort of first, like, he leads with his wounds, you know? And we talked about how that is a little practical, like, so you know it's really me and this is really my body and this really did happen and it wasn't all a dream. And there's a whole other level that you can sort of understand that on. Do you see those levels playing out here also? I think the woundedness and the healing of the wounds is really important. I had not framed it exactly in that way for myself. But I mean, what we have here is this jailer who had just been about to kill himself because he was afraid of what would happen if the prisoners got out on his watch. And now he's got them all at his house, (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) feeding them and healing them, even though he hasn't yet been given any permission to let them go. And so there is this radical transformation of this guy in this sort of moment, believe in Jesus. And he's sort of in the process of doing that. He's realizing the compassion for the wounded. So I, I do think that's really crucial, this sort of human, humaneness. They're no longer sort of objects to him, but they're people with wounds. And he's gonna, gonna treat those no matter what the cost might be to him. I'm not sure I'm connecting that to Jesus's wounds. I'm curious if you, if you can connect that back for me. Yeah. So I think actually it is, is based on my confusion with the pronouns <laughs> in this verse, oh. <laughs> in this verse of who's, who is washing whose wounds. And I think, I think your reading is actually right. 
that the jailer is wash is washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. Mm. But I had originally read it as the wounds of the family were washed before they were baptized. Oh, I see. What is the NRSV in verse 33? At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Yeah, it does sound like what you said. Oh, the, same- the CEB just substitutes the jailer in there for that he. The CEB uh, has clarified, which is why yeah. I'm so confident in my interpretation is because it has been given to me by the CEB translator. Yeah, no, that yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I think maybe that the compassion connection is um is sufficient to the day. Yeah. I guess I'm just think I don't know. I'm thinking about about the presence of wounds in the face of baptism and like and, yeah. and rec- recognizing wounds in these like significant moments of faith and um yeah. Yeah. I mean I think either way you read that is pretty useful because you know what he does immediately if you read it the way the CEB has it, this jailer's washing their wounds. That's immediately before he is baptized. Mm-hmm. So there is something about, I mean, there's a repentance there. He was causing wounds or at least enabling the wounding of people, and now he is healing those people, and that is connected to his baptism. I think that's really important, whichever way you read it. Once you are baptized, you become a healer of wounds. Yeah. And your wounds, I mean, his own wounds have been healed, as we talked about metaphor- metaphorically mm-hmm. at least. That, you know, he was trapped in this system where he was about to kill himself and now he has been given his life back in some in some way. Yeah. Anything else you want to say on this? I feel like we should talk, we could talk about this section forever, yeah. but we also have one more section to do. Is there anything else you want to add for this one? I think that's probably it for me. I will say that actually, I just remembered that this last section is not actually in the narrative lectionary. We added it uh, with the Bible Worm Collaborative. <laughs> Verses 35 to 40. Okay. Because we thought it added kind of an interesting texture. And so partly the reason this text feels so long is because it's actually- Because we made it longer. (laughs) When I say we, I mean, yeah, the Bible Worm Collaborative and I uh, in our meeting last month got excited about this last part. Okay, great. So, (laughs) great. So now we're doing the the, um, extra bonus part. The extra bonus part, yeah. Okay, picking up in verse 35. When morning came, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. Paul's really unafraid. (laughs) He is. That guy, yeah. He is unafraid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, he causes troubles in some ways for for us uh, theologically, but he is very firm in his convictions and completely unafraid of everything. That's exactly right. Why do you think the magistrates decide to let them go? I don't know. I mean, 
like they went from you need to be in maximum security to like, okay, <laughs> you've been in jail for 24 hours. Like, right, we're done. We're releasing you. And, you know, the most sense that I can make of it is that they have realized that this was sort of mob violence, that they mm-hmm. threw them in jail. They didn't really have any reason to hold them. They hadn't done anything. It doesn't, mm-hmm. that's the only way I can make any sense of it is that they've yeah. sort of just realized what, you know, that time has passed and they've realized that we don't actually have a case here. Yeah. Is there any other way to get into that? I mean, the only other way I can think about it, which is very similar to yours, was that this is was really all theater from the beginning. Yeah. Sort of exactly as Paul's accusation is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you did this big public thing. Oh, you know, it's yeah. you're in this super most secure thing. We got the guys, whatever. And then in the morning you're like, okay, we're, you know, we're done. Which is, I think, effective yeah. for the community to see it all happen. And also effective in terms of the fear that you have now put yeah. If it wasn't Paul, because he's afraid of nothing, but if you were a normal person, the fear that you have put in someone like, we can do this whenever we want to. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. I think that's exactly right, Amy. I think that's exactly right. And so then then this explains why Paul and Silas make them apologize publicly and walk them out is because it undoes that whole thing. And then by the end of the story in 39, they're begging them to leave. So they've gone from like, wow, we could do this to you anytime we want because we're powerful. And now at the end, they're like, oh my goodness, please go away. Like, Get out of here. And so the, pa- the power dynamics have completely flipped. I, I like that as a, as a, not as a, not as a realization that what they have done was over the top. But in fact, from the beginning, they knew and it was all theater. I think that is such a nice interpretation. I, I love that. Are they really Roman citizens? Yeah. Um, oh, they are? Paul is a I Roman totally citizen. I totally was like, Paul's just saying stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one of the things about Paul. He's from Tarsus. Uh, he's a Roman citizen. He says that in his own letters. Silas apparently as well. So yes, and it is so interesting to me the way they use that information mm-hmm. because they could have said that way back when they were like, these are Jews and they're doing Jew stuff. <laughs> and they're dangerous. They could have said, well, we're Roman citizens, but they didn't. They yeah. waited until this whole thing played out. And then they were like, by the way, I just, I mean, that's so, I don't know quite what to do. Because part of me is a little bit like, okay, they have privilege. And so their privilege helps them there at the end. But they didn't, they were really, really strategic in how they exercised their privilege. Because mm-hmm. if they'd done it at the beginning, they would have just, you know, saved themselves a night of trouble. But because they did it at the end, they embarrassed the political authorities and kind of undermined the civil, you know, the civil authority and said like, hey, y'all really shouldn't be shaking people down like this. Yeah. Yeah, that has me thinking back to our conversation last time about Paul sort of, you know, living in, living in two worlds as a Jew in the diaspora, having these multiple identities that that are just both true, you know, and, and I, we, we live in a world still, even today, even though we know that everyone has lots of identities, there is often pressure to, to just have one, you know, what, what, what's the real one? What's the most important one? You know, we have to choose one, one identity over another, but here Paul uses his, his two identities very strategically. He does. Mm-hmm. 
I love. I just love that image at the end. After all of this, you're in maximum security, and by the end, they're begging him, <laughs> like, just please go away. Like, yeah. It's well played. A, it's very comic, and you know the power dynamics have absolutely flipped. Yeah, it is. Uh, in terms of just sort of social commentary, the fact that after all of this, what frightens the authorities is the fact that they're Roman citizens. Yes. Yeah. That's so messed up. Can you take that a little further? Like, it's not that they did something wrong. It's not that they got called out for just executing violent, you know, security theater, political theater, whatever. It's that... They thought they were they were committing this against an outsider. Yes. Yeah. And now they find out it's not an outsider. Yeah. And now they realize they're not supposed to do this. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I love that, Amy. Because, I mean, there's still Jews who were doing yeah. the very things that they were, I mean, I don't know. Nothing changed. Ext- nothing yeah. changed. And so if they were not Roman citizens, then this whole thing would have been perfectly fine in the eyes of the civil authority. Mm-hmm. You, it's fine to treat Jews that way. You just can't treat Roman citizens that way. And the arbitrariness of that. So arbitrary. Yeah. One of the things I love, so the fact that Paul holds back the information about his privileged status kind of exposes that reality. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use it exactly to get him off the hook. He uses it to put the the authorities in Philippi on the hook just to show, like, this is messed up, y'all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how effectively he does that, but it, but that's part of what he's doing, I think, is to say this system where you can, ab- you can abuse me as a Jew, mm-hmm. but you can't abuse me as a Roman citizen. That is exactly messed up, exactly like you're saying. Yeah. And it still goes on. Like, it absolutely goes on. you got to know somebody is. Absolutely. you got to know who their status before you know how you can treat them. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, friend, of the many things that we could pull from here, what is at the top of your mind? I think where I'm, I mean, I'm drawn to so many things. This is such a rich text. One of the things that is really drawing me is the way that Paul and Silas treat the jailer mm. and they're sort of, you know, they're singing of songs, which leads to this dramatic earthquake, even though they don't seem to necessarily have been trying. They haven't been asking God to set them free. They've just been worshiping and God does this thing. And then they're so gentle to the jailer. They, they put his safety, his well-being ahead of their own need to escape. This results in his sort of being set free from the system that he's in. He comes to be baptized. Like, there is just such a attention to him, I think, that Paul and Silas display, sort of putting his needs ahead of their own needs in this situation so that he comes to faith. I think there's something so lovely about that. Some of it seems intentional like not running away. Some of it seems purely happenstance, like singing songs in prison. Mm-hmm. But everything kind of leads toward this moment for the, for the jailer. That then pushes me back to the beginning of this text and the degree to which Paul is not at all thinking about that slave girl and what is good for her 
And so he just gets annoyed with her and casts out a demon, which puts her, I think, in jeopardy uh, with her enslavers. I mean, it gives her enslavers kind of what's coming to them because they lose money, but it really endangers her. She does not get set free from her slavery. She does not, as far as we know, come to faith. Paul seems to have done this thing because he was annoyed. And he created this whole like effect for this girl who, who then falls out of the story right. altogether. Right. And so those two things together are like really kind of, I mean, they're making me struggle a little bit with like, how do we exercise our faith and with what intentionality and with how much awareness of what's going on around us? Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm just thinking about that in terms of like my own faith and, you know, uh, the intentionality that I do and don't exercise and who am I thinking about versus who am I overlooking? What unintentional effects do I have? And when I act out of annoyance, like what are the ramifications of that for people that I have never considered? Why have I not considered them? I don't quite know where that lands. It more creates a more self-reflection for me about who am I and who am I aware of and not aware of and to what extent am I trying to be faithful versus just being an annoyed person. It just makes me, I think, sort of want to operate with more care for all the people around instead of sometimes being aware of people that I'm trying to be in relationship with and then sometimes completely ignoring people and and actually maybe making their life worse, not even knowing that I'm doing it. Yeah. And I think... I think sometimes there is really that tension of like I of wanting to sort of break down the system, blow up the system, make some big statement against the system and also being aware that like the system is still in play and so the people yeah. who are locked into vulnerable positions in the system when you overturn the cart yeah they're in danger. Yeah. And that of course and that doesn't mean we never overturn the cart. It but it also doesn't mean that they don't matter to this story. You know, it's it's yeah. really hard to hold the personal experience of someone alongside the sort of bigger systemic disruptions that maybe are needed. I don't I don't know how to do it. But I think this text calls us to think about that. That's really well said. And you know, I, I in my reading of this text anyway, they are very thoughtful about how they overturn the cart when it comes to the jailer. Yeah, they have anticipated how this is going to affect. You're him, right. You're exactly. And they have right. tried to take care of that. They have not at all thought about it with You're regard right. to the slave girl. And you know, there's a slave status there. There's also a yes. she's a woman, mm-hmm. and so there's there's all kinds of ways in which maybe she doesn't catch their attention because of their own sort of inherent biases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here yeah. you see, I like that you see it both ways in this one text, carefully overturning the cart with an exit strategy. Uh-huh. and carelessly overturning the cart without any thought about the people that might get hurt. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah. Where does this text take your thoughts? <sighs> I think I think I'm still sort of stuck on the role of of singing in yeah. the jail. There are uh, there there's a lot of Jewish teaching about the the role of song in the in the life of faith and and one thing that's sort of on my mind as I read this is, is the idea that in order to be hopeful, 
in moments of, of like truly being enslaved or in prison or danger, in danger, it requires a little bit of prophecy. Like you have to yeah. be able to really see and believe in a future where in body or mind or spirit or whatever, you are going to be out of this place. Like you have to really be able to see it. But and there's also a teaching that you can't prophecy without a little bit of joy. Mm. Like if you are too low, you just, you can't. Like the spirit of prophecy won't come to you. And yeah. so, so this, this story, this story told through that lens would be that Paul and Silas had that little bit of prophecy. Like really their, their singing was in some way like prophetic. Like it's yeah. okay to feel this joy because it is going to be okay. Yeah. And then their song gave like just enough joy to the people who were around them that they could, you know, maybe sort of be yeah. able to envision that future yeah. anyway. And that that you you can borrow joy and, yeah. you know, step up, step up upon it. Yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking, I'm such a wordy person. I like words. I like how they divide yeah. things up and make everything organized. And and I've been thinking a lot more lately about song and how it sometimes that. breaks down all those things that I've tried to separate. You know, it's like, no, no, yeah. no, actually they're all the same. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you've splintered everything off. Now you can put it back together. Yeah. So I, I see some some real beauty in there. I love that. It reminds me a little bit of my teacher, Walter Brueggemann, who, you know, he talks about prophecy as having two movements. He, he calls criti- criticize and energize. Mm-hmm. And the energize is the part you're talking about is hope. Like you, you mm-hmm. can't just be critical of things and that's it. You've got to have some basis. And he says that poetry, like mm-hmm. the, the hopeful texts of the Hebrew scriptures are poetic. And, you know, the poet, poetic texts are often sung texts. And so I really love that, that there's something about song, there's something about poetry that provides hope in which the criticism takes place. You, but you got to give people hope. And that's, yeah. that is inherent to the pro- prophetic task. Yeah. I love that. Good stuff, Bobby. Good stuff. Next time, we are continuing in the book of Acts for one more time. Um, And we will read Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 31. Paul will be in Athens. Yeah. It's a good text. Good. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, friend. It's good to see you as always, and I'll see you next time. All right. See you then, Amy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Rachel Mastin and Joy Hine. Next time, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 31. Until then, keep on digging.